Good morning again to everybody. What does it look like to be a church like Jesus? It's a fair question, isn't it? What does it mean to be a church like Jesus? What does it look like? What do we actually do? This is, this is the question that we are wrestling with in this new series, A Church Like Jesus. Uh, for those tuning in online through either our podcast or through Facebook Live, uh, welcome to Christ the Word Church. My name is Patrick, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the Word. As a church, it's important how we do what we do, isn't it? Why we do what we do may be even more important than that. There's lots of strategies, there's lots of models, there's policies, there's uh, business plans, ministry guides. I mean, all of these things can be good things, but I wonder sometimes if we lose focus of what Jesus actually said and actually taught and actually modeled when we're pursuing these other strategies. Because if we lose focus like that, then we cease to be a church like Jesus. Last week, we discussed Jesus' radical hospitality, didn't we? We talked about how he is inviting, how he's an invitational person, and how we as a church need to be invitational when we're reaching out, that we are accepting people for where they are. We welcome everybody, but we understand that the gospel doesn't leave them the way we find people, but we have to set aside our prejudices and, and different things to see people for who they really are. We talked about the Imago Dei, being people having the image of God built in within them because we are made in the likeness of God, and we are to see that in others. And then this week, we're going to take a little different turn and look at Jesus' teaching. But before I go any further, how about we go to God in prayer once more? I need the guidance of the Spirit as we tackle this subject. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for who you are, that you love us, and you are more than worthy of our worship. This time is all about you and not about what we get out of it. And so we recognize that our worship is about you. It focuses on you. But Lord, as we consider how great you are and we look to your scriptures, we know that we need all the help we can get. We pray that you'd silence any voice in us but your own, that you'd op open our hearts and our minds to receive your word to us on this day and every day. And Lord, I pray that as my words stray from yours, may they fall away and quickly be forgotten. But may your word, your truth, and your promise remain upon our hearts forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, and all the saints said, Amen. So there are lots of examples of Jesus' teaching in the Bible, right? I mean, the, the Gospels are just full of examples of how Jesus teaches, and he goes some different routes different times, doesn't he? And so we can learn from all of those, but I think our story this morning really helps illustrated how creative Jesus can be, especially when you put Jesus up against the wall and supposedly in a corner. You know, kind of like Dirty Dancing, you don't put baby in a corner, don't put Jesus in a corner, because he knows his way out. You don't want to put him in a corner. But that's exactly what happens in the story of Jesus being confronted with this adulterous woman. So here's a disclaimer, though, as we look at this passage, because how many of you have read this passage before? I mean, we hear it a lot. I mean, even people who don't, don't go to church will often utter the phrase, you know, you without sin cast the first stone. I mean, that has even made its way into our culture. But I do want to give this disclaimer. As we're looking at this beautiful story, we're going to be looking at it through a particular lens. And the particular lens of which we're going to be looking at this is we're going to look at how Jesus is teaching. A little bit less of what he is teaching, which is extremely important. But for the sake of this series, we're going to look at how 
Jesus is teaching? How is he modeling his creativity when sharing these timeless truths? Because if we have a truth to share, we need to share it in a way that people can hear it. Amen? So that's what we're going to be looking at when Jesus is in this. So there's a lot we could dig into here, more than we have time today, but we can come back to this passage another time and dig into those aspects. So I did want to give that disclaimer. But let's consider this scene. How does this scene open up? Jesus is there. He's been at the Mount of Olives. And then these scribes and Pharisees bring this woman. I mean, when I, I read that, I kind of imagine them dragging her before him, right? Here, they're dragging this woman who's been caught in adultery, and they bring her into the midst of this gathering of people and Jesus. So we have this woman caught in adultery before Jesus, and we have these scribes and Pharisees there testifying against her. So let's help understand, dig a little deeper in the scene, because I think especially in our culture, uh, adultery is looked poorly upon, but I would say that uh, the penalty is a little different now. Uh, as, as much as people uh, take part in this act, there are not too many harsh punishments. In this day and age, someone caught in adultery could be put to death. It's punishable by death. That's a death sentence, usually by stoning. Not a good way to go. But that's what the law of Moses said. But we do have to be clear of what the law of Moses said. The persons had to be caught in the act of adultery. It wasn't enough to be caught in a compromising position. You had to be caught in the actual act for it to be punishable by death. I mean, let's, let's consider that for a moment, why that's important in this scene. For this woman to truly be guilty of adultery, they would have had to have seen it happening. It's not usually something you happen upon. If you are suspicious, a lot of times it took some planning so that you could be in the right place at the right time to catch the act and happen. In fact, uh, the Apocrypha is not a part of our Bible, but there's a book in it called the Book of Susanna. And there's a story in this where a woman is falsely, ac uh, falsely accused of adultery is acquitted merely because the witnesses couldn't agree upon the kind of tree that it happened under. I mean, that's the level of specificity. That's a hard word to say. Specificity. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say it again. That you had to have for someone to be punished by death caught in the act of adultery. And then there's another component here. Notice there's one person being drugged before Jesus. Where's the man? Where's the other person in this act? So already it begins to cause some questions of going, okay, well, where is the man? Either he got away or perhaps he was let go because he was unimportant for their true purposes. Or maybe even perhaps he was in on it. Maybe the other party was in on it, putting this woman in a compromising position just so that this situation could be used to pose this question to Jesus. Because what's the question that they pose to Jesus? Teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded to us, stone such, stone such women. So what do you say? What do you say? What's the purpose of this situation? Is it really to condemn this woman? Is that the purpose? 
now. It's not the purpose. It's a trap. In fact, we are told as such in the following verse. In verse 6, we are told that they asked this to trap him. That was the purpose. It had nothing to do with the woman's sin except to trap Jesus. And we must admit that this scheme is quite creative on their part. Because they're trying to catch Jesus in this catch-22 where there is no right answer. That he can be condemned either way. I mean, we see this happen in politics all the time. You pose a particular question not really caring about the answer except that when they say this, you can say this about him. Or if they say this, then you can say this about him. It's all about trapping the person and not getting actual information. It's about discrediting somebody. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to discredit Jesus. And how would they do it in this sense? Let's consider the two options he has. So if Jesus says, we should forgive her, which would be congruent with his teachings of grace and mercy and the way he modeled himself. But if he were to say that, they could say, well then, oh, the law of Moses doesn't mean anything. Then who are you? Who are you that you say you're greater than the law of Moses? And didn't Jesus himself say that he didn't come to abolish the law? He came to fulfill it. So if he went with grace, then he would be against Moses and the law. But if he said, go ahead, stoner, she's guilty. Then we would have seen a teacher who is no longer graceful and merciful, which to be honest was one of his greatest draws because he is, he is establishing this, in the process of establishing this new covenant of grace, and that's what draws people to the gospel. That's what makes it such good news is that we are broken people. We can't do it on our own, and we need grace and mercy. But if he had said that, he wouldn't be so graceful, would he? So do you see this catch-22? Either answer would have been wrong. But when you back Jesus in a corner, does it always have the results we expect it to have? Because just as creative as those scribes and Pharisees were, and we have to give them credit, they were creative in this. Jesus is far more creative. And he sees this moment as a moment of teaching. And so I wonder how often we consider difficult times when we feel backed in a corner as an opportunity and as a moment to experience grace and to see God at work instead of just not having any options. So what does Jesus do? What's his response to their question? What's his first response? What does he do? He bends down and starts drawing in the dirt. Okay. If you let's let's put in your mind's eye that you're at this this situation. You are a first century Jew or Greek and you're standing in you're witnessing and you see these people drag this woman before Jesus expecting her to get stoned, and they pose it to this great teacher that you know has been traveling around, and he's, he's well-renowned, and he's known for his wisdom, and he begins to draw in the dirt. Would that capture your attention? Would it? I mean, what would your response be? How do you think you would react? Is that expected? Do you think they expected him draw down and just start drawing in the dirt. It's quite unexpected. But what it does 
is it draws us in. I'm sure at that point, he had everybody captivated. He had everyone's attention. And so that does lead us to our first point that we want to see. Jesus' teaching draws us in. It draws us in. It captivates us. It's inspiring in some ways. It's just, it's captivating. It just captures our attention. It draws us in. It doesn't push us away. I ran across an article online that said it was the 10 ways great speakers capture people's attention. Some of you may be thinking, Patrick, you need to read that article a little bit more, but 10 ways. And the first one that Sims Wyatt, the author, poses, he said his first suggestion is to start with the unexpected. I mean, how many great talks start with the unexpected, the the hook? You know, in a good story, it has a hook at the beginning. Within the first sentence or so, you have to hook people to keep them engaged. And his speaking is no different. Do something unexpected, and you will capture people's attention. Jesus constantly shattered people's preconceived assumptions, didn't he? And their expectations. I mean, this is the guy who would stoop to the level of a commoner, yet he was this rabbi. This is the guy who would stoop down to talk to children, when at that time children had no real value until they were adults. I mean, this is the guy who would talk to prostitutes and talk to women, who would talk to Samaritans, who would go dine in the house of a tax collector and the lowest of the low sinners. That was this Jesus at every angle. He's going against the grain. He's doing the unexpected. And he's drawing people in and capturing their attention. So maybe like me, you're wondering, what exactly was Jesus writing? I mean, what was he doing? I mean, was he drawing a smiley face in the sand? That would really be unexpected, wouldn't it? I mean, there's there's a lot of different theories about this. And perhaps you've heard some of them too. Some people believe that he was writing the, the names and the sins of all the accusers, which that would capture people's attention. Patrick, liar, cheat, Rachel. I can't think of any sense for you, so good. But I mean, wouldn't that capture the attention of everybody starting to see their name and go, oh my, oh my goodness. I mean, that's one theory. Another theory is that he was writing his response before he spoke it. Much like a Roman judge would do before delivering a verdict, they would write down, you know, making it official. I mean, that's another theory. Then, then a third theory I ran across that has some credence to it is that um, he was writing his condemnation of the witnesses. Maybe even quoting Jeremiah seventeen thirteen that said, "O Lord, those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth." I mean, that would capture your attention, calling out the false accusers. But let's be honest here. These are reasonable suggestions, but we have to admit we do not know what he was writing because the gospel does not tell us. So therefore, to us, it may not be all that important what he was writing, but how he was going about this. He paused. He captured their attention. He changed the momentum of the conversation because it really was all about putting him in the spotlight and then he he runs with it. Okay, I'm going to teach. Because Jesus uses lots of tactics, doesn't he? He uses parables. He uses stories that draw people in to help illustrate a point. He uses metaphors. I mean, how often does he use an agricultural reference to teach a biblical truth? Because at that time, everybody understood agriculture. You know, they grew their own food 
unlike us who go to the grocery store. So I guess the parable of the sower would be the parable of the grocery store for us. But Jesus used what was around him. So I have some questions. When we consider about Jesus' teaching drawing us in, some questions for us to consider. How can we shatter people's expectations of what Christians are and what Christians do? Not necessarily in a shock and awe way, just doing something just to be shocking. But you know what? If we really are Christian, we are going to do things and believe things and live things that are countercultural to the rest of our world. That have us acting differently. Like the song says, they will know we are Christians by our love. I don't think that's meant to be an arrogant song. It's meant to be a song pointing out that if we are Christians, people would know us for being the most loving people around. And in many day and ages, that's how Christians were known. That's how hospitals were started. That's how orphanages were begun. Because Christians loved people. Are we speaking, acting, and living in ways that turn people away from God instead of drawing them in? How often is our own witness not compelling or not interesting or we're not living what we say we live? Let's admit we're all hypocrites, right? We all can be very hypocritical. But we really have to take care of when we're speaking that we're not living a different way that completely discredits our testimony. Are we turning people away instead of drawing them in? Are we giving too much of the condemnation and not enough grace? Or are we pushing too much of the grace and we don't speak the truth and love? And how can we draw others in to hear this life-giving, life-changing, life-redeeming, life-rearranging message of Jesus? In what ways do we need to listen more before we speak? I'm sure that moment gave Jesus some time to consider what he was going to do. And it also gave a good dramatic pause. So now that Jesus has captured the attention and capitalizes on that and uses his creative choice to draw people in, what happens next? And they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Okay, this time the writing on the ground, I I experienced as kind of his mic drop moment. You know, just, all right, go ahead. And then he goes down and starts writing on the ground. What do you think this caused the observers to do? If you were there, again, in your mind's eye, you were there, how would you react to this statement? How would it make you feel? Especially, let's say you already had a stone in your hand. How would you feel? Better drop that stone, exactly. (laughs) Got to be honest with ourselves. This leads us to our next point. Jesus' teaching calls us to question. He's not just spouting off wonderful knowledge, but his, his speaking actually brings them to the point where they have to consider and question. They have to question themselves. I mean, because, Ellie, if you were dropping that stone, that would meant that you questioned yourself and you started to look at yourself and go, okay, I'm definitely not without sin and I don't want to proclaim to be as such. 
and you drop your stone. It brings people to a point to question. Jesus calls us to question our own motives. How often is he teaching that he's questioning our motives? Maybe we're doing the right things for the wrong reasons, and it can still be wrong. He calls us to question our own sins, to consider that we are broken, we are sinners. I mean, here we are, we're putting this adulterous woman on trial, but yet, can you say that you are any better? Calls us to question our place under God's law. Calls us to question our relationship with God. See, people draw, Jesus draws people in so that they can begin with introspection. Because change happens from the inside out, doesn't it? Change happens from the inside out. How often are we trying to change somebody from the outside when we're not getting to the heart of the matter? Jesus knows that we are inherently selfish. Can anybody in this room say that they're not selfish? Raise your hand. Okay, good. I was going to make a list of anybody who did raise their hand and realize you need a pastoral visit, we need to talk. You know, we are. We are all inherently selfish. We're born selfish. That's one of our greatest sins that leads us to a whole host of other sins is that we are selfish, we are self-centered, we only like to think about ourselves. But Jesus starts there because he knows that's where they're going to hear him. He starts where they are. I mean, consider for a moment, anybody ever been to a therapist or a counselor? Does a good therapist or counselor start by telling you what's wrong with you? In fact, very often, they don't tell you much of anything. They ask questions. You get to talking, then they ask more questions. More and more questions, going deeper and deeper and deeper. Questions that cause us so often, you know, a good therapist or counselor helps you arrive at the answer just by asking questions. Because you understand it better when you come to that realization than if someone just tells you. My guess is you know that you're selfish, not just because someone like me has gone, you're selfish, but because you came to that conclusion yourself, realizing, oh, wow, I've done some really selfish things. A lot of my motives have been very self-serving. Jesus is drawing people in and causing them to consider asking the deeper questions. If you want to understand yourself better, keep asking why. Why is this bothering you so much? I was in a a program called Clinical Pastoral Education, CPE, and it was working as a hospital chaplain, but even more so than that, there were a group of us who would get together weekly and we'd process and talk through these things. And the facilitators, I think I've told some of you this before, the facilitators, I, I I, I swear they were good people, but they were sadists because they would try to get us to turn against each other so they could use it as a teaching moment. They would call somebody out and go, yeah, why did you do that? And then, you, you know, you'd be put on the spot and go, well, you know, because of this. And, well, why? You know? and, then, and then they'd realize that someone's getting angry. they say, well, why are you getting so upset? We're just talking here. What's bothering me? You're putting me on the spot. And they just keep asking, well, why do, you, why do you feel that way? Why do you care? Why do you care what people think about you? Why is that bothering you so much? And it seemed so wrong at the time, but looking back on it, I saw exactly what they were doing. There were so many things that came down to, it wasn't them. You know, I could talk about how mean they were being to me, but it came down to, they were hitting something, a nerve within me. And I can't do anything about how they're treating me, but I can do something about how I receive things. 
I learned a lot about my own insecurities, and I have a lot. I learned about my own faults, and I have a lot. Don't talk to Kate. There are plenty there. But asking why gets us to question and think, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's going with the why. Let's consider these questions as we consider how we can call people to question. Are we willing to start where someone is? I mean, this links to last week. Are you willing to kind of accept somebody for who you are? That doesn't mean that you want them to stay in that life, in that situation, but are you willing to meet somebody where they are? Or are we expecting them to come to where we are so that we can talk? Jesus was the one who stooped and lowered himself constantly. I mean, didn't he do that when he stooped from heaven to become flesh and dwell among us? That's the ultimate stooping. So are we willing to get down and get dirty and just meet people where they are? How often are we more interested in displaying our prowess and showing off our own knowledge instead of just asking questions and letting someone else drive the conversation? When you're a person who just talks at people all the time, you don't often make friends as much as when you're the person who listens. When you're known as the person who listens, how many times have you been in a conversation where someone else is you know, doing all the talking and everything, and you're just asking questions here and there at the end, they're like, man, it was really nice to get to know you. Thank you, thank you so much. And you're thinking, I hardly said anything. I asked some questions. In fact, you really don't know anything about me. But, you know, in those circumstances, maybe it's not about you. People need to be heard before they can hear. Have we considered the deeper questions ourselves? Because can we really invite people into digging deeper into themselves if we haven't done the dirty work ourselves? Do you know your own faults? Do you know your own insecurities? Do you know your own sins? Have you considered how amazing this grace is that God offers to each and every one of us? But Jesus' questions don't just leave us in a place of wondering, but they also make us consider what they were doing. Because what was the response of the individuals when Jesus posed this question or this statement? You without sin cast the first stone. What happened? How did they respond? Dropped their stones and they walked away. That's exactly what they did. Every single one of them, including the men who are conspiring against Jesus. They left. They walked away. This leads us to our third and final point. Jesus' teaching demands a response. Jesus' teaching doesn't just leave you there wondering and questioning, questioning but it leads to a point of action. What are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? Now that you have considered this question within yourself, you've asked the deeper questions, what are you going to do about it? You can consider other people's reactions all you want, but you have no control over their actions. You have complete control over yours. How are you going to respond to this knowledge? This point of decision is important. Now, let's consider, I mean, this, the, the, this situation. 
I mean, did, did all of these individuals who walk away repent of their sins and walk away? Probably not. In fact, a lot of these same individuals are the same ones who are going to continue to conspire against Jesus until they ultimately do get their way and Jesus is crucified on the cross. Not because of their creativity, but because Jesus finally allowed it. But, imagine how the other people who were standing there may have been impacted. We don't know what happened. Some of those may have actually become disciples of his. But it was because he led them to a decision point. He led them to a place where they had to react. You've had had those questions posed, what are you going to do about it? Have we responded ourselves to the deep questions of the gospel? Do we see the need of a savior in our own life? Do you? Nothing will humble you more than considering of how much and why you need a savior. And do we understand the urgency of it? Do we really understand that it matters right here and now? That we can't force it upon anybody, but it matters now. It can't wait till tomorrow. It matters today because none of us know how much longer we have. Nobody knows. So the questions for us as the church is, do we hesitate to pose the hard questions and instead leave somebody in limbo? You can do it in love, but do we leave people in limbo instead of being bold and asking those bold questions? Do we present our message in an ambiguous way and therefore it doesn't cause people to question their own life and motive and their position before God? We can be quite ambiguous, can't we? We think we're being so clear, but we're, but we're not. I mean, how often have we seen this between the dynamic and men and women? You know, men, I'm going to speak up for us, but I'm, you know, we can be quite intelligent, but sometimes we can be really dense. We don't get signals. We don't pay attention to signals. It may be so clear when the signals are there, and then, whoop, nope. Sometimes we have to be really direct. And how often are we thinking we're sending the signals, but they're not being received in that way at all? And how do we creatively bring people to the point of decision? We can't choose for them, but we can present the question in a loving yet firm way. Because if we really do want to live into this vision to see our community changed by the hope and healing of Jesus, we must seriously consider the creative ways Jesus presents his message of hope and healing. Jesus is compelling. Can we be compelling to lead people to a compelling Jesus? It starts with us. Are we compelled by the hope and healing of Jesus? Does it matter to you? This doesn't just affect the way I preach. It does matter, but it doesn't affect the way I preach. This this affects everything. It affects how we do ministry. It affects how we treat one another. It affects how we reach out into our community and do outreach. Because if there is no outreach, then we're doing nothing to change the community by the hope and healing of Jesus. How does the hope and healing of Jesus change our community if it's never presented? It changes everything.
Will you see our community change to the hope and healing of Jesus? Will you draw people in through the way you live, the way you teach, the way you speak, the way you treat other people? Do you take opportunities to help people call to question their own motives, their own lives? Maybe even being willing to divulge how it's brought you to that point. And do our questions, thoughts, words, and deeds lead people to a point of decision and response? That's what Jesus does. And if we want to be a church like Jesus, then brothers and sisters, that's what we must do as well. Let us pray. God, we pray that you would help us truly follow the path of Jesus. And when we reach out to our community, when we speak with others, we pray that through the spirit of wisdom, you would help us to be creative, to be countercultural, to be unexpected in beautiful ways so that people can hear this compelling message that is you dying on the cross for our sins, you beating death, for us, you redeeming and recreating everything that has been broken by sin. Lord, help us to share this compelling message. Give us courage that we might be bold in Jesus' name to bring others into your presence. And in his name we pray. Amen.